Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you. Thankful to gather with my church. Um, a couple of us were gone this last week. Um, Pastor Tom, Pastor Greg, myself, uh, visiting Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., attending uh, more of a pastor's workshop and conference there, and refreshed, learned a ton, walked 11 miles in a matter of a few hours, led by our faithful tour guide, Mr. Tom Way, um, but certainly mindful of you all being away this past week and glad to be back. Uh, if you're visiting here this morning for the first time, uh, been invited by a coworker or a neighbor, we're so glad you could join with us. Um, again, as Kevin said, welcome to our church. We want you to know that you are most welcome here, uh, not only feeling welcomed and greeted, but above all, our, our primary aim and prayer is that you would be f- refreshed this morning in hearing of the good news of our Savior, Jesus Christ. My name is Brett. I'm one of the elders um, here at Veritas Church. And if you are new or you have some questions about the church, we haven't met yet, um, please make a point to say hello at the back door. And then just to underscore what uh, Kevin noted, this Saturday will be our new members class. Uh, So if if you've been recently attending, um, been visiting here for some time, this is the next kind of layer of uh, to get to know us as a church, what it would mean to be a member of Veritas Church as you seek to follow Christ as one of his disciples. Um, Attending the class does not um, automatically make you a member or commit you to that, but it is a prerequisite for moving forward into membership. So again, this Saturday, the link is there in the bulletin. If you would um, plan on registering just to know um, how many resources and chairs and all of that to set up. Let's turn this morning to Mark's gospel. If you have not already, we'll be considering the end of chapter 14, Mark chapter 14. Um, beginning in verse 26. We'll make our way through the entirety of the chapter, but let's read together the first paragraph here in considering God's word. And when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Would you join with me? We consider God's word. Let's ask for his help as it's open before us. Father, how greatly we need the full counsel and comfort of your word. How greatly our souls need to be affirmed and strengthened, directed, even corrected by the goodness of what your word proclaims. And most specifically as it announces the, the goodness of Christ the necessity of his sacrifice, the hope of his resurrection, and the eventual hope of your your return. Lord, we're here before you with your word, a very sacred portion of scripture, a very sorrowful portion of scripture in some aspects, but Lord, we we ask that you would move us beyond just the ability to, to hear words and to make logical connections and to understand the point of the narrative, but Lord, that you would cause what only your spirit could do, that you would cause fruit to be born, 
that you would cause us to be shaped by the image of your Son, that you would cause regeneration, that you would bring conversion, that you would, Lord, bring an an awakening to the goodness of the gospel this morning. Lord, we cannot do that. We cannot do it in our own souls. We cannot do it for our spouses. We cannot do it for our children or the dear neighbors and friends that we've invited. But Lord, you can. And so we're asking that you would be faithful to your promise and that you would work according to your spirit for these ends. We ask in Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. There is something reassuring, perhaps even mesmerizing, about watching confidence on display. Think about how many highlight reels are filled with the clock running down, the team behind, and the coach putting the ball into the hands of the proven and confident point guard. Or think about how many stories we love to read, we love to tell, we love to see. They capture our attention as the hero confidently charges into battle, steps into the middle of the street at high noon, or just continues to forge ahead into uncertainty full of confidence. I think we can say that confidence is even attractive. It's comforting. And we love to have it so. But what about misplaced confidence? What about the reality that for every self-assured leader and for every self-confident follower, that there is also a warning That there's also a myriad of stories for every confident leader who moved out in one direction or every assertive statement saying that this is the way it is. That we can also think in the examples of this sort of confidence of how they've ended in shame or how that sort of confidence has actually brought financial ruin or military disaster or even death. How wide is the wake of destruction that ripples behind that sort of bravado. Perhaps even in thinking that way, the wisdom of Proverbs 16 has come to your mind. One that perhaps many of us know that reminds us that pride goes before destruction. And it's a haughty spirit that goes before a fall. The scriptures are filled with names, with cities, with nations that failed to take this truth, this warning, to heart. And within this portion of Scripture that's here before us this morning, we find yet another testimony of the foolishness of misplaced confidence and self-deception. And the point is made here by contrast. A contrast between Jesus and that of Peter. Now, we're going to read through this and see how Mark includes the various details of the prayer that's there in the garden, uh, the betrayal of Judas that you're probably familiar with, the arrest of Jesus, this mockery of a trial that's brought before the religious leadership. But this section begins and ends with Peter. That's of note. And if you may remember, church history tells us that Mark's account most likely given to us through the testimony of this man, Peter. The section is bookended really by two haunting statements. The one that we just read of Peter asserting, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And if you look ahead to verse 72, 
It ends with these six words, and he broke down and wept. We, as the reader, are intended to hear the failure and the breakdown of Peter laid alongside the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus. Yes, this this is a story about Peter, but the Bible is ultimately about Jesus. And I think we would be amiss if we focus solely on Peter and the deviations he makes and the failures he makes if we did not lay that alongside what also Mark is weaving together within this. The faithfulness of Christ laid alongside the failure of Peter. Because when we see the point that's made by this contrast of Jesus and Peter, what we come away with and what we see is that Jesus is our great comfort and he is worthy of our trust. So let's consider how this unfolds as we consider Jesus as the one who remains faithful when others fall, that Jesus prays while others sleep, and that Jesus endures while others deny. More or less, that's how this portion of Scripture is structured. Look back at verse 26 again, and notice how Jesus remains faithful even in the certainty of others falling. Because he comes to them, and it says in verse 26, when they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Contextually, Mark mentions that a hymn was sung, which connects us to the Passover meal that was just shared in this earlier portion. And in that portion, Christ just illuminated the Passover meal by the reality of his person and work, showing that the bread is his body given for his people. The blood is the, the, the cup is the blood of the new covenant. And so, most certainly, the pressing weight of his sacrificial death upon his mind as they move from the table to the Mount of Olives. But Mark says not only did they do that, that they'd sung a hymn. Adding to this emphasis of this looming pressure of Christ's certain death, we would have known traditionally they would have left this Passover meal singing the second part of the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 114 to Psalm 118. Psalm 116 is especially striking, knowing that they would have sung these words as they made their way from the upper room to here, that Jesus would have sung these very words only hours before he would be arrested, betrayed, and crucified. What would he have sung? Psalm 116, verse 8. For you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So in light of his coming death, Jesus then speaks of the effects of his death upon his followers. And he speaks to the certainty of this falling away. 
Jesus' prediction, it's anchored by this phrase, it is written, there in verse 27, connecting what he says to Old Testament scripture. And the scripture that he's anchoring this in is Zechariah chapter 13. In its original context, Zechariah 13, it refers to the martyrdom of God's promised shepherd. It's another picture in our scriptures where God brings salvation through judgment. The salvation of God's people would be accomplished by the judgment of the shepherd. Bad news. But within Zechariah 13, this bad news, it's set off by good news. Because even though there's going to be this striking and then this scattering, verse 9 of Zechariah 13 says there's going to be restoration. This wonderful anthem that echoes throughout redemptive history where it says in verse 9, they will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people and they will say, Yahweh is my God. That happens again and again and again. Christ points his men to this portion and says it's certain and here in mark 14 jesus says much of the same hard news set off by good news i will strike the shepherd the sheep will be scattered but he says but but after i'm raised up i will go before you to galilee meaning neither the striking down nor the falling away is going to be the final word here it's certain it's going to happen, but I will go before you into Galilee. Yes, the shepherd is going to be struck down. Yes, all of you will fall away, but take heart. I'm going before you into Galilee. Keep that in mind. It's going to come up again in chapter 16. Throughout Mark's gospel, he's been very careful to show how Jesus' words are filled with authority and power. It's been a recurring theme all the way from chapter 1. And because they're filled with authority and power, Jesus' words are trustworthy. Think back to what we've heard. If Jesus says, be healed, men are healed. If he says, little girl, arise, she arises. If he says, be still, the wind and the waves are silenced. If he says, come out of that man, Demons flee and shudder. And if he says, you will all fall away, they will all fall away. And if he says, I will be raised up, he will be raised up. Authority and power, therefore trustworthy. But what does Peter hear? Jesus speaks of the certainty of this fall, but what Mark tells us is this confidence that Peter responds with. Upon hearing of this prediction, fleeing sheep and struck shepherds, Peter assumes he's the exception to the rule. When Jesus says all, he doesn't mean me. Even though they all, I will not. He exudes confidence, doesn't he? A very self-confident statement. For surely, I will be the last man standing. Others might fall, Jesus. I understand that. But not me. But Jesus responds, assuring him not only the certainty of this fall, but the immediacy of this fall. Peter, I'm not talking about 10 years from now. I'm not talking about three years from now. Peter, I'm not talking about tomorrow. Peter, I'm talking about 
tonight. Before the rooster crows twice, Peter, you will deny me, not once, not even twice. Peter, you're actually going to deny me three times. And Peter raises the tone of his bravado even an octave higher and says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. So this sets the stage for everything that's going to follow. Whose word will prevail? Whose word is trustworthy? Whose word actually is full of authority and power? Jesus or Peter? Can we trust Jesus? Can you trust his assessment of you? Can you trust his assessment of sinners, of righteous, of his return? Does his word have authority? If it does, are you listening? Are you listening to his word? Am I listening? Friend, if you're not a Christian, one of the most helpful and fruitful things you could do is just to begin reading through the scriptures and take note of a couple of things. Take note of what God says about himself, what God says about sin, and then what God says about Jesus. As you begin to synthesize those things and read through what the scriptures say of God, of sin, and of Christ, you'll begin to have a little more clarity on actually what this Bible teaches. And then, having begun to see some of that, ask yourself, why am I not trusting these words? What is it in my mind or in my perception that causes me to say this isn't trustworthy. And then I would encourage you to find another Christian and begin to have conversations about that. The overwhelming emphasis of Scripture is that Jesus remains faithful even unto death. And faithfulness is our great hope. His faithfulness. Jesus most certainly remains faithful when others fall. But it goes further, and we see this Jesus. He actually prays while others sleep. Look back at verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Do you see the contrast? 
Do you see the contrast between Jesus, Peter, the disciples? Jesus prays while others sleep. Notice how the very language and the very structure of this passage, it serves to highlight the the isolation of Jesus and and the great heaviness upon him and the great failure of his disciples. Notice how that in in agony and in distress, Jesus prays. Really, in contrast to how with Peter, in weariness and temptation, he ends up sleeping. You see the great disparity? In agony and distress, Jesus prays. Look what Mark does. He uses and records very painful language to convey the sense of burden. Jesus speaks of being distressed. He speaks of being troubled, grievous sorrow to the point of death. He's burdened with grief and overwhelmed with the heaviness of sorrow. And in his agony, he looks to his father in prayer. Now, it's interesting. We, as Christians, we often make much of the physical pain and agony of the cross of Calvary. No doubt it certainly was. But do you notice what the emphasis is in Scripture? One, it assumes that crucifixion is painful. But actually, the emphasis of the distress and the weariness and the burden And the temptation is here in the garden. That's where we're actually given much more graphic language as to the pain of what Christ endured. Why do the scriptures say more about the agony of the garden than the pain of Calvary? Why is this? Why is Jesus so overcome by the prospect of death? I mean, if you know anything about church history... You've read the final words of other men facing certain death, martyrdom. This is the will of God, and it means your life will be ended. And maybe you've read some of those words, their final words, and there appears to be a facing of death with much greater composure and much greater confidence than Jesus right here. Why is that? I mean, even if you know of Ridley and Latimer, The English Reformation burned at the stake for their faith in Oxford, England in 1555. Tied together, side by side, as the flames begin to eat at their flesh, Latimer turns to Ridley and says, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man, for we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. How can that man speak with such confidence in that death, and yet we read of this Jesus in such pain facing this death? Well, the answer is that it's an entirely different kind of death. It's a radically different kind of death that Jesus faces compared to every other death that's ever been faced. The dread and the overwhelming sorrow of Christ is not because of the prospect of physical suffering, but for the purpose of the death that the suffering would entail. The key to understanding the agony of the garden is found within these two words, the hour and the cup. Both images are taken from scripture and the vocabulary of apocalyptic literature, speaking of the certainty of God to accomplish his purposes primarily through judgment. The cup, most often in Scripture, has everything to do with the judgment of God, specifically the wrath of God being poured out, and the wrath of God being personally experienced by those on whom the cup is poured out upon. 
And Jesus here speaks of the hour, and he speaks of the cup. Sorrow to the point of death. Isaiah 51 uses this language, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who've drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs of the bowl, the cup of staggering. Friends, when you talk about salvation, when you talk about the death that Christ died, you must, in that conversation, understand what that salvation is really from, what that death is really for. As Christians, we affirm universally, if you're a Christian, you affirm Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that he became man to accomplish the salvation of God's people. But why did all of that have to take place so that we could be saved? Why did Jesus become man? Why did he have to die a death? If in answering that question, you do not get to the reality of judgment and wrath, you've answered that question insufficiently. There is other motives, there's other aspects, but if you're not talking about judgment and wrath and the death of Christ, you've misunderstood the primary purpose of Christ's death. The salvation that Christ brings is not just salvation from difficult circumstances. In fact, many Christians' testimony is that they were saved and their life got horribly worse, painfully worse. So it can't just be salvation from bad days, nor can it just be salvation from simply guilt alone. I used to feel really bad and have a low self-image, but now I'm a Christian and I'm really confident. Okay, maybe, but is that really what Christ has come to do? To give you a better positive mental outlook? Friends, if that's all it is, you've misunderstood the teaching of the Bible. Ultimately, God saves us in Christ from himself. His righteous and just wrath against sin. Christ died to save us from the judgment that we deserve. Instead of the wrath of God being poured out upon his people, Jesus comes to drink the cup himself to save his people from the judgment, the good and just judgment that their sin deserves. And so it is the agony of judgment. It's the weight of sacrifice. It's the cost of bearing our judgment that leads Christ into the garden to fall on his knees and say, Abba, Father, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. But in contrast to this, we read that in weariness and temptation, Peter sleeps. As they come into the garden, Jesus gives one instruction in verse 34. Remain and watch. You could literally say, guys, you have one job. Yet while Jesus is over there pouring out his soul in prayer, the disciples sleep. And while they all slumber, Jesus comes and he addresses Peter directly. Could you not watch one hour? You can't help but hear the bravado of Peter's boast in verse 29 echoing in the background. Even if they all deny you, I will not. Even if I must die, 
Could you not stay awake for an hour? We're not even talking about death at this point, Peter. Just stay awake. The watching and the praying that Jesus calls these men to is really in contrast to the spiritually lethargic, careless attitude that marks them out. Now remember, the last word on the Olivet Discourse back in Mark chapter 13 was to watch and to pray lest you be caught sleeping. The danger of spiritual laziness combined with the allure of temptation is a deadly combo. And Christ has already warned them that you will all fall away. Given everything that he's front-loaded this evening with, would you not expect these men to remain and to watch? But they don't. This is the sort of warning that ought to provoke a sense of urgency, a sense of soberness. Not just to these men, but certainly can you see the application to our own lives? Watch, pray, spiritual alertness, the allure of temptation, the danger that surrounds us, the danger to your soul. Three times he warns them to watch and to pray that they will not fall into temptation. And three times, what does he find? He finds them sleeping. Jesus, in agony of soul, pours out his heart before his Father, submitting his will to him, casting his cares upon him, and in contrast, Peter and the others sleep to their own demise. Church, this is interesting. This is the second time in a number of weeks that the word of God has come to us and warned us about the danger of spiritual lethargy, charging us to watch and to pray. It's not a coincidence when the Lord repeats himself as we're just expositionally making our way through a book of the Bible that you begin to hear repeated exhortations. Watch pray, remain, watch, pray. Are you alert? Are, are you aware? Maybe somebody's asked you, like, can you read the room? Are you spiritually able to read the room? Are you able to look around and recognize how much danger lurks around us? Are you aware of the dangers among your business travels? Are you aware of the need to watch and pray because the excessive amount of free time you happen to have in this season of life? That's dangerous. Are you aware of the dangers of just being among friends and the conversation of, of joking and coworkers and schoolmates? How easy it is to compromise your testimony, to be drugged down into a manner of conversation or even decisions that you regret? Friends, there's dangers in prosperity. Maybe you are wonderfully blessed right now, financially, with time, with children, with job. That is a dangerous place to be in. Equally so, there's great dangers in sickness. How easily does bitterness take root in our souls? There's dangers in being married. There's dangers in being single. I would challenge you to find one season of life that does not demand the Christian be watching and praying. And when we begin to think that this isn't one of those seasons, beware. Could you not watch for one hour? Again, in contrast to Peter, 
laid alongside this is Christ. And this contrast is meant to just strike us. Jesus prays while others sleep. But Christian, this posture did not end here in the garden. When you fail to watch, he remains on watch. When you are overtaken by temptation and fall into sin, Christian, he stands as your high priest making intercession for you. He presents you faultless before the throne. He loves to make intercession for you, covering you in his righteousness, assuring you of God's good favor upon you because of the fact that you are united to him. Jesus prays when you fail to. Jesus watches when you fail to watch. Friends, that is the comfort of the gospel, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Hebrews 3, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus prays while others sleep. Jesus is the faithful high priest that we need that he lives to make intercession for us. There's one other point made by contrast here, and it's that Jesus endures while others deny. Jesus endures while others deny. Again, this is the contrast between what Jesus endures and what Peter endures. And the contrast between both is meant to pull us into the text. Look down at verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus, to put him to death, but they found none. 
were many false witnesses against him. Many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. The high priest stood up in their midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy, and what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face and strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Falsely accused, mocked and beaten, yet endures. The prayer in the garden quickly gives way to betrayal in the garden. We read of this Judas, one of the twelve, one who dipped his bread in the dish with Jesus, this Judas whom Satan entered, the one who conspired with the chief priest in their plot to destroy Jesus, receiving 30 pieces of silver to betray him, to enable their plans. This Judas now embraces Jesus, greets him, and kisses him. And this kiss, a measure of intimacy being the very sign to the guards looking on to say, that's the one. The guards seize Jesus, we're told, and bring him into custody. And there's this fledgling effort to kind of defend Jesus as a sword is drawn and ear goes flying. But in the end, what it says in verse 50 is the point, they all fled. Even an innocent bystander spectator seized as well, but He escapes into the night. Jesus is most certainly alone. And so upon his arrest, he's brought into the courtyard of the high priest. The Sanhedrin gathers and they begin to question Jesus. Now in order to charge him with offense, they need a testimony of two or three witnesses to bring any sort of charge against him. But because Jesus is the spotless lamb without blemish, there there was no charge they could muster up. The ultimate definition of blameless For three years, his public ministry. There before them, teaching in the temple. And yet they could find nothing. But in their hatred and in their deception and their desire to kill him, they then attempt to fabricate some sort of accusation. False witness. If we can't find the truth, let's find some lies. But even in their lies, they couldn't get their lies to to align in order to find any testimony that could agree to arrest him. And through all of this, Jesus remains silent, hauntingly silent. The sort of silence as the innocent Son of God stands before lies and mockery of religious hypocrites. Perhaps reminding us of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. So 
he opened not his mouth. So in this prolonged silence, it provokes the high priest to just ask quite bluntly, look, are you him? What's your claim? Are you the Christ? Are you the promised Messiah? Now remember who these men are. They're the religious leaders. They're responsible for the gathering, the teaching of Scripture. Well-versed in all the prophecies. Well-versed in Genesis 3.15 and all the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Are you the one that we're waiting for? Are you the man? Are you the Son of God? Well, to deny this truth would spare Jesus his life. To affirm the truth would ensure his death. Is Jesus trustworthy? Is his word true? Well, what does he say here? I am. I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. Jesus leaves no doubt in their mind. It wasn't some soundbite that could have been twisted out of context to say something else. He not only affirms, he goes further and says, yes, and let me clarify to what we're talking about. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. I am, and all that that means, I am. This is the way in which the prophet Daniel speaks of the coming Redeemer in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man coming in the clouds in glory. This is the way David sang of him in Psalm 110, and this is the way that Jesus speaks of himself here in Mark 14. This was all that the chief priests needed. To hear a man affirm his divinity in their minds, unless you're that man, that's blasphemy. And according to our law, blasphemy means death. Yet again, the words of Jesus can be trusted. Because all of this was happening just as he said. Do you remember Mark chapter 10 as he was making the ascent up to Jerusalem? He pulls his disciples to himself and he begins to tell them, So we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him spit on him and flog him and kill him. And Jesus testified plainly, boldly, truthfully, yet it meant certain death for him. And yet again, this testimony of Christ is now laid alongside that of Peter. In contrast to Jesus, we have Peter now who is rightly accused, questioned, pressured, yet denies. Look what Mark says in verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. 
But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Again, the contrast, Peter to Jesus. The bravado of this disciple who was so confident that he would remain with Jesus even to the point of death is now denying Jesus upon a few questions from the crowd. He denies being with Jesus. He denies being numbered among the disciples. He goes so far as to call a curse down upon himself to galvanize the surety of his claim. I do not even know this man. And the sting of the denial is all the more painful when you consider the reality of what Peter actually walked through. The intimacy, the experience, the kindness that he received from this man Jesus. The Jesus that he denies is the one whom he'd lived with for three years. The Jesus that he denied stood in his own house and healed his mother-in-law. The Jesus that he denied is the same that he boldly confessed and said, you're the Christ. And now he says, I, I never knew him. All the boasting, all the promises of faithfulness, they come crashing down in a few moments, and Peter breaks down and weeps. Brothers and sisters, do you know something of this kind of weeping? This kind of collapse? Vows and promises that I will never, I'll never do it again. And yet you did. Resolutions, good intentions, I got a plan this time. But sin and then the shame and the guilt that come with it. Friends, Peter's life is a vivid illustration of Paul's announcement. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Friends, the contrast of Peter's denial laid alongside Christ's faithful endurance is really the deep grain of this passage that's meant to direct our hearts and minds into the truth of the gospel. The Bible is filled with characters who are unfaithful. The point of the scriptures is to show us that these characters are not the main characters. Their unfaithfulness points us to the very need for the one who is faithful. We read our Bibles and we see at every point in this story arc, there's this one promise to us who would be faithful. Right alongside, massive unfaithfulness. We are promised of this one who is sinless. Right alongside grievous sin. The entire arc of Scripture is pointing us to this reality that there is one who is faithful and that is our great need. So what that means is that your attempts to simply be a better husband, 
a more loving wife, an obedient son, an obedient daughter, is never going to reach the status that God requires. But there is one who has. There is a faithful one. We too, like Peter, we are meant to be broken over our unfaithfulness, longing for the one who would ultimately be faithful and rescue us. He remained faithful when everyone else fled. He was struck down so that his sheep would be spared. And again, he goes before us as our conquering king. So we're brought back to this original testimony of Christ and the assessment he made of Peter. What do we see? The words of Jesus, they're proven true. Can Jesus be trusted? Yes. Are his words full of wisdom, full of power, and full of love? Yes. Okay, if that is true, what sort of assessment do the scriptures make of us? And do we agree with them? In our natural condition, here's what the scriptures say. In our natural condition, born as you are, you're born in sin. We are corrupted and we are twisted by sin. And instead of glorifying God, who is our creator and our rightful king, we suppress this truth and we actually deny him. We deny the truth of this reality. We try and cover it up and we excuse it. We try and find reasons why we're the exception to the rule. But in our denials and in our justifications for not believing him or honoring him or taking him at his word, the scriptures say, you're without excuse. And in being without excuse, we remain under the wrath of God. Are you taking God at his word? If not... Do you see the folly of not doing so? Are you following the very example of Peter and considering yourself to be the exception to the rule? That's not the only thing that the scriptures say about sinners. That is true. But there's something equally as true. For while judgment upon sin, the wrath upon, of God upon sin, it is certain The scriptures also announce the certainty of mercy. The agony of Christ in the garden has everything to do with the purpose of Christ being upon the cross in Calvary. For the scriptures also announce that Christ's death is the sufficient payment for the judgment of God upon the sins of his people. And whoever looks to Christ, believing in the provision of his death and his resurrection, is promised life, is promised forgiveness, is promised a new heart. The sort of life that's marked out by the forgiveness of sin, the washing away of guilt and sin that you could not wash away from all of your good works, the assurance of being welcomed by God and living under his good pleasure, no longer trying to earn something from him because Christ has earned it all and all your obedience is done as an act of worship. Friends, the words of Christ can be trusted. They're the source of all our confidence. And that's what we rest upon. So the Christian, ironically, ought to be the most confident person 
in the planet. It's ironic because their confidence has nothing to do with themselves. Their confidence has everything to do with the one in whom they're trusting in. And so the Christian in the face of sin, their conscience wrecked, knowing that they are wrong, can confidently say, I come on the merits of Christ and plead for forgiveness, believing not only that my sin is forgiven, but that he will give me new desires. I'm confident. Why are you confident? Because Christ has said it. And his words are powerful, and they're full of authority. Therefore, I can trust him. The Christian is confident even in the face of death. Even when the doctor says, inoperable. That Christian, confident. How can they be confident? Because he says, once I am struck down, I will go before you. Once I'm raised up, I will see you again. The Christian's confidence in the Savior, not in doctors, not in medicine ultimately, but ultimately in the one who is the great physician. Christians ought to be the most confident people on the planet because of Christ. So let's do that. Let's look to him. Let's respond by placing our faith in him, believing that his word is sufficient. Father, how much we need your word. How much we need the work and the ministry of your spirit. Lord, you, you alone have the words of life, and so we look to you. Lord, it's very easy to see ourselves in that of our brother Peter. It'd be very easy to begin to deceive ourselves that we're not like him. So, Father, we pray that you would work your word into us, that we might see the truth, not only of ourselves, but ultimately the truth of your Son. Help us to see Jesus as he is, that we might find ourselves resting in him we might find ourselves absolutely confident in all of his words and all of his work. We pray that you would continue to build us up in our most holy faith, that you would continue to strengthen us and establish us that even in the face of our own sin, even in the face of sickness, even in the face of death itself, Lord, that we would be those who are able with our even weakened voices to lift our heads and to be able to say with great confidence that you are good, that you do good, and that you delight in mercy. Father, continue to work in us for your good pleasure. Continue to strengthen us as your church that we might honor and glorify you, we pray. Amen.